Thank you, Rich. We do serve a good shepherd, don't we, church? He is worthy. Let's, uh, let's pray one more time. I know we do this a lot, but this is a privilege and, uh, and such a need as we approach the Scriptures to hear uh, from God's holy, inspired, infallible Word. We need the guidance of the Holy Spirit, so let's, let's ask for help. Father, thank you this glorious July morning that you hear us in prayer, that we can come before you in confidence to receive all that we need in Christ. And we know as, as a good father, Lord, you incline it to give your children good gifts. And so we ask for help. We ask that you, the good shepherd, would protect us from wrong, that you'd protect us from error as we approach your word, Father, and that you would guide us in your truth. Lord, build fruit for Christ's kingdom as we grow up in the grace and the knowledge that's found only in him. We pray in his name. Amen. Let me invite you to take your Bibles again and turn somewhere else. This time I'd, I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 9. We're starting a new chapter, guys. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. We'll be reading through from verses 1 to 17. If you're using our church Bible, that's found on page 814. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And I'll remind you that this is indeed the Word of God. And he, speaking of Jesus, called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust of your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. By some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him, again Jesus, all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And the crowds learned it. They followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go to the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so. And he had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. And he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied, 
And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. This is God's Word. Well, in today's passage, we see Jesus sending some, confounding one, and sustaining many. He sends out His twelve. He perplexes and confounds that fox, Herod the Tetrarch, and He sustains the multitude with a miraculous meal. So let's take these one at a time. We'll start with that first pericope in verses 1 to 6. It's a fun word. I like to use it. Pericope. It's just section of Scripture. Verse 1 to 6. You can write that down and use it later today. Verses 1 to 6. This is actually the first time we see Jesus doing something like this in Luke's Gospel. So... Firsts in the Bible are important. Let's make sure we've got this one down. We've got to know who he sends, what they're supposed to do, and then what in the world we're supposed to make of all that. Let's start with the who. That's, that's the easy one, right? Let's, let's look at verses 1 and 2 again. Again, Luke 9, verses 1 and 2. Who does Jesus send out on this mission? Oh, come on. We're going to play this every single week. I've got to coax you to talk to me. Verses 1 and 2, they are his disciples, apostles, yes, yes. Actually, the text designates them as just the 12, right? The the, the 12. Now, we remember just a few chapters ago in Luke's gospel here that Jesus called his disciples and chose from them, from his disciples, 12, whom he named apostles. It's an important word. That word apostle in Greek is apostolos, the language of the New Testament, apostolos. It simply means messenger or sent one, which is uniquely appropriate because this is precisely what Jesus intends to do with them, right? In fact, that word sent here in verse 2 of chapter 9 is just the verb form of the word apostle. In Greek, apostello. So, so get this, he apostelloed, he sent out the apostolos, the, the sent ones. That's exactly Jesus' intention for these special 12. You've got to realize, up to this point, the apostles have not been participating that actively in Jesus' ministry, right? I mean, pretty much the extent of their ministry is picking their jaw off, off the ground, <laughs> As he continues to work miracle after miracle, as he raises the dead and heals the lepers and and restores sight to the blind and preaches the kingdom with unparalleled authority. Well, now Jesus gives them their first on the ground, boots on the ground training, their orientation, if you will. So, so there's the who, the, the 12, Jesus' apostles. Next question, what did he send these 12 out to do? Answer, well, the same exact thing he's been doing, right? I mean, we've been tracking through the book of Luke together. This is a, specifically a twofold mission. Look at verse 2 with me now. 9-2, chapter 9, verse 2. He sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. There's two forms of healing that are uh, articulated here, the first of which is healing from oppression, casting out spiritual forces of darkness, casting out demons. 
And then also healing from physiological ailments. By the way, the Bible is very careful not to conflate those two. Those realms can overlap. Sometimes demonic oppression takes form in physical ailments. We've seen that already here in Luke's Gospel. But there is a difference between spiritual demonic oppression and sickness. Fun note. That word proclaim, they were to proclaim the kingdom here in verse 2, is actually the same root word here in the, the language of the Bible and, and, and Koine Greek. It's the same root word for preach. It's really what preaching is. It's the act of proclaiming. This is a, a heralding of the glorious truth that the kingdom of God is here. Why is the kingdom here? Well, because the king is here. And where the king is, the kingdom is. The king has come. That's what they're to herald. That's what they're to proclaim, to preach. And then there's miracles that accompany that kingdom message to prove it, right? I mean, these, these miracles are never in Scripture an end unto themselves. They're rather confirmation that the message and the messenger are indeed of God. Hard to overstate that point. These miracles showed, these miracles confirmed that the message of the kingdom that they had come to declare was indeed true. So the million dollar question is, how in the world were these 12 supposed to pull all this off? I mean, you've heard about these guys, right? I mean, not exactly the most objectively elite group of guys that we, we could pick. It's absolutely critical, church, for us to understand this. If you miss the how of Luke 9, you miss the whole point. How did the 12 accomplish this? Dr. Luke puts it right, on verse, in, right in verse 1, so that we can't possibly miss the rest of the point that follows. They, they're able to execute on this preaching of the kingdom, on this healing, because Jesus gave them two things. He gave them what? Good. Power, and He gave them authority. Now, simply stated, power is the ability to do something. Authority kind of overlaps a little bit, but, but it also has a different element to it. Authority is the right to do something. The apostles needed both, the power, the ability, and the right to do it. I once heard someone say it this way. It was, I think, helpful. You may have the ability to run. Well, that's power. But if you were to drive down to D.C., an attempt to run across the White House lawn this afternoon, you'd be up for a rude awakening, politics aside. Because although you might have the power, the ability to run across the White House lawn, you don't have the authority, do you? You don't have the authority to be there. You see the difference between power and authority? Jesus gives them both. Now, don't gloss over that little word in English, that word gives, because this, uh, this authority doesn't come from them. This is an alien authority. 
This is an authority that exists outside of the twelve. Jesus gives it to them. He gives them power and authority. And it's interesting to note, isn't it, in verse 3, that's about all that he gave them. Now, it's more than enough, but he makes a point to say, nothing else. I'm giving you authority. I'm giving you power. Nothing else. I mean, talk about traveling light. Jesus told the apostles, pretty much, take the clothes on your back. No extra clothes, no food, no bag to pack stuff in, not even any money, like if you get in a pinch. So Jesus sends out the 12 with what one pastor has called, I love this, a calculated deficit. A calculated deficit. You know, when you literally have nothing, you're forced to rely on God for everything. This is Jesus' assignment to his apostles. Jesus gives them a very specific instruction about what they're to do as they're preaching, as they're proclaiming the kingdom, as they're healing, and as they receive invariably a mixed bag response. By the way, whenever the gospel goes out, A mixed response is what you get. Jesus says, there will be some, verse 4, who will be hospitable, whose hearts will be open and warm to this gospel proclamation, to this kingdom message. And what's reception of God's word look like here in verse 4? Well, it looks like hospitality. By the way, Hospitality, friends, is a spiritual gift. And it's a very important one at that. One beautiful response of God's people to truth is warm, open hearts that receive that truth and make room for God's people. That's a big deal. I'm thinking of a local ministry here in the area. We've mentioned it several times over the course of the past few months, and, and Lord willing, we'll be talking about it with you more uh, as, as time goes on, but there's a ministry here in Pittsburgh called PRISM, and it's a ministry of hospitality. It's a ministry of welcoming as students come from all over God's green earth to Pittsburgh for some reason, for grad school or for college. A lot of these students are open to receiving American culture and a warm home-cooked meal. And this ministry exists to, to do that. These students are open to coming to church and learning about what Christianity is all about. We're actually praying now. Many of you met Nima, who was here from Iran recently, very open to the gospel, curious about the things of God. He's home on summer break in Iran. Pray for Nima. This is a dangerous place for him to be asking questions about Jesus. He's got a Bible. If his family finds out, who? What's my point? My point is, this is one of the things God's people do. If you're looking for application, what's it look like for me to walk out the truth of God's Word? One of the things it looks like, friend, is that you would just open your door occasionally. Welcome people in. God's people in. Hospitality. Now, on the flip side of the coin, we see in verse 5 what happens, Jesus' instructions for what happens 
for those who do not receive them. Now, this is collectively. If there's a town, if there's an area where the disciples are preaching the kingdom of God and there's no warm reception to God's truth, to God's kingdom purposes that are declared, what are they to do? Well, they are to, verse 5, shake the dust off their feet. This would have been an indicator of separation, of, of judgment, really. You see, at the time, like, shake the dust off your feet. Like, what is that in 2023? Well, at that time, in the ancient Near East, things were pretty dusty and hot. And they would wear sandals, and, and, and as they would travel through certain areas... Very devout Jews, as they would move through a Gentile region into a Jewish region back home, would make sure that not even the dust from their sandals, not even the dust from their feet would, get, would come with them into the Holy Land. This was an action of separation. There is a separation, you know that still, between the holy and the unholy. We serve a, a holy God. Jesus said, I'm the difference between holy and unholy. My gospel, my good news is going out. And if they won't have me, let them be like an outsider. Let them be to me as a Gentile, to you as a, as a Gentile. Shake the dust off your feet. This is a stark statement. Remember, Jesus has come to divide. He is the Savior and the stumbling block. This is the teaching of Luke's gospel. Let's, let's keep rolling. Now, we don't really have a lot of detail about what transpires in this particular orientation of apostleship as the apostles are on the ground. Luke doesn't give us too much details, except that we know that the mission was successful. Look at verse 6. We read, They went through the villages, they obeyed, preaching the gospel, and healing. It, it worked. Why? Well, because... It was Jesus' power. It was Jesus' authority. Now, um, we see elsewhere in Scripture a little bit more color about what happens when the, when the apostles come back from these missions. Jesus will send out 72 in, in a little bit. But the overarching principle here in chapter 9 is this. If you're going to go out with delegated authority then you don't have the authority to say or do what you want. You must simply repeat the things that the one who sent you has given you to say. What were the apostles doing? Nothing except what they'd been given to do and say. Man, that'll preach. And we need to be reminded, Friendship Community Church, that this is, although the activity is different, though the power and authority may, may look a little different, this is our basic posture as disciples of Jesus. We don't say anything other than what He said. We don't presume to be creative with Jesus' kingdom. He told us what to do. And frankly, we don't always do such a good job with the basics, do we? Church, this is why we're committed here at FCC to expository teaching of the Bible. Jesus has taught a lot of things. And it's not our job 
to ride our theological hobby horses as Christians on Sunday morning. It's not my job. My job is to just shake out of this book what he's already said, just to repeat it and to apply it. This is the posture of those who follow Jesus. Like the apostles who, look at verse 10, gave an account as they returned to their master. So one day, we too, church, will give an account to the one who sent us. Let me ask you some rubber, rubber meets the road questions, some diagnostic questions to your heart this morning. This isn't hard stuff. It's simple, but it's, it's important. Ask yourself, am I living as if one day I will give an account to my master for what he's given me? With my resources, with my gifts, with my time, Friend, you don't own a blessed thing. You're a steward, and so am I. We're managing God's resources. And one day, we will give an account of how they've been managed. Just consider the basics with me for a moment, right? I mean, just, just like square one. Are you intentionally doing what the Master has given you to do and say? Well, when, when Jesus sent the church out in Matthew 28, you know, a little thing called the Great Commission, he gave us three marching orders. He said, go. He reminded us first that all authority in heaven and on earth is his. Every ounce of authority belongs to him. We've seen that in spades, right? Nothing he can't do. Now, with that in mind, Go. And make disciples of all nations, followers of Jesus. That's, that, that's where the gospel starts, with Jesus, believing on Him, following Him, make disciples of all nations. Step two, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Okay. Have you, have you decided to follow Jesus? Has He opened your eyes to behold His glory and His goodness? Do you understand that you can't stand before a holy and perfect God unless you're clothed with the righteousness of the perfect One, Jesus, who died for your sins and rose for your eternal life? Do you understand that? Are you a disciple? If you check that box, step two is get baptized. Baptizing them. Baptizing whom? Well, the disciples He was just talking about. Like really resisting the urge to like dive off the clip into pedo baptism. We're not going there. <laughs> Baptize the disciples. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're here, I'm just going to be that pebble in your shoe. If you trusted Jesus as your Savior and you're here today and you've not been baptized, I'm throwing a flag. Talk to me. One of our elders, talk, talk to them. We would love the opportunity to come alongside you and with Scripture in view, help you obey the word of your Savior and King. Make disciples, baptize those disciples, and the third step is teaching them to obey all that I commanded you. It's a big book. 
It's taking a lifetime, won't it? it? It'll take the rest of your days, and you won't do it perfectly. Think about that. Just, just, again, rubber meets the road. This is simple stuff. This is important stuff. You're called to do what your master says. Do you know what he says? That's why we read this book. That's why we give ourselves to it. Okay. All right. As we read through this passage, there is a burning question in the back of some of your minds, undoubtedly. It's a, it's a common question of those who read Scripture and who think about the miraculous works of Christ and His apostles. Here's the question. If our fundamental task as followers of Jesus is the same as them, if our fundamental task is to be representatives of the kingdom of Christ, then why don't we see or perform the same kind of miracles we see here in Luke 9 and all throughout these Gospels? What's up with that? Are these things still for today? This is a thick topic, but I think it's an important question to ask as we're wading through a passage like this. Are these, sorts, are these sorts of miracles supposed to accompany us as they did them? Well, there's a popular pastor and theologian, John Piper. Many of you have been helped by Piper. I know I have, who said this, I think, helpfully. He said, there were fewer miracles in the Bible than you probably think, and more miracles today than you probably know. Fewer miracles in the Bible than you probably think, and more miracles today than you're probably aware of. Remember, there are large swaths of time throughout the course of redemptive biblical history where signs and wonders from God, listen to me, were not the norm. They were not normative. Oh, remember that 400-year period or so between the Old and New Testaments? No prophets, no mighty works, no signs and wonders as far as we're aware. Nothing recorded for us. 400 years. Generations of people lived and died and had to operate on faith, not by sight. Almost like I've heard that somewhere before. How about another 400-year period when God's people were in bondage in Egypt, enslaved to their Egyptian overlords, crying out to God, how long, how long, God? You just put those two blocks of time together, that's 800 years. That's a long time for generations upon generations of people to live or die without seeing this kind of crazy, cataclysmic signs and wonders stuff. Which is why we read about even in Scripture. We read the psalmist saying in Psalm 77, 11, I wrote down the reference if you want to go chase this later. The psalmist writes, he's having a bad day, by the way, in Psalm 77. This is a hard psalm. But in the midst of his pain, the psalmist writes under the direction of the Holy Spirit, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. Well, what's that mean? 
apparently, in this psalmist's time, there weren't that many miracles happening then, such that he had to reach back and remember the miracles from when? From long ago. So, so you see, there's certain people at certain times in the Bible who could have asked the very same question we're asking now. Why doesn't God seem to be working as frequently in the miraculous as he did in days of old? Well, friends, because it's simply not true that there were constant miracles abounding everywhere you turned around in Scripture. It's just not the way it worked then, and it's not the way it works now. God is sovereign, and he reserves the prerogative to do what he wants when he wants. Shame on us if we try to, in our own strength and power, in our own zeal, manufacture that which he has not done. That's, that's part of the answer, isn't it? Why don't we see these things with as great frequency now as they existed in the first century? Well, well part of the answer is that you can't give what you don't have. Why could the apostles do these things? Because they were given the power and the authority. If we don't see this kind of stuff in our midst, why is that? Well, at least part of the answer is God has not given to us at this juncture, at this place, at this time, at this moment, that power and authority. And the Bible is crystal clear on this. God does not give all his children the same gifts. We talk about this constantly. Oh, what a need the church has to grow up into this truth. I'm like censoring things that I are coming. I almost said, God's not a communist. Well, he's not, but that's not very helpful. God doesn't give all his children the same thing. Just a little primer. I've got, got another reference for you. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 to 30. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. And then... The Apostle Paul starts to question rhetorically, are all apostles? Answer, of course not. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? Uh Uh-uh. Do all work miracles? Nope. Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Do you get it? You don't have a thing that you've not been given. Nor should you try to run with gifts that you've not been given. Although, newsflash, again, God reserves the right to do what he wants when he wants. We should be reminded that at the end, there will be another influx, another dispensation, another mighty throng of miracles, of signs and wonders, and not all of them good, by the way. 
Don't be swayed, Jesus says in Matthew 24. This is from the mouth of your Savior. Speaking of the end, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders. They're really doing it. So as to lead astray, if possible, I love that part, if possible, it's not possible, but if it were, to lead astray even the elect. See, Jesus said, I have told you beforehand. Don't miss the point. These miracles showed up in the apostles' ministry to confirm, to authenticate that the message of the kingdom was true and that the messengers who carried it were authentic. This drives us then, I think, church, not apostles, disciples, it drives us to a similar posture of dependence. We, we can't run with what we haven't been given, so let's focus on what God has given us, what He has clearly spoken that we are to obey. All right. Simple point of application on this note, and I want to say this with grace, but I think I must say it as long as we're wading through this hairy topic. What's one way, one way that you can apply this truth to your life? Here's one way. Beware. Look out. Beware of false or misguided teaching or practices that seeks to manufacture God's power and authority where He has not given it. I'm telling you all the time, I grew up in the sticks in northern New York. We went to a church there and without using names tell you a tragic story about what this can look like. There was a woman who quickly uh, got sick, devastating sickness, and over time she was being prayed over by the church, prayed over by the church, prayed over by the church, and sadly she passed. Well, there's some people at that church who were reading their Bibles and they were seeing that Jesus can, we just read this, like, what was this, last week? Jesus can raise the dead, and he can. He can still raise the dead. But one woman at this church was convinced that God had called her to do this. So think, think about this. I mean, think with horror about what this might have been like for, for the family of the deceased. So she shows up at the wake, at the viewing, the funeral viewing, and starts commanding her and calling upon her to rise from the dead there in the coffin. Can Jesus do that? Oh, you better believe Jesus can do that. And He will to every soul that's His. He will raise us to eternal life and give us resurrected bodies. But just because he can, doesn't mean that he will right then. I think many of us here in the West struggle with presumption. We see what God can do, so we assume he will whenever we want it. We dare not ruin our witness 
by running ahead with gifts God has not given. Don't presume to speak in God's name when he has not spoken. All right. Be careful of this stuff. It's out there, isn't it? Everywhere. Instead of this kind of presumption, the text, the biblical text, screams of dependence of the apostles and by implication our utter dependence upon God, on His Spirit, on His given authority, on His delegated authority for His people to work and live and breathe and move. All right. That's probably time for us to move. Verses 7 to 9, we'll we'll be quick with this one. We see a fascinating segment about Herod, Herod the Tetrarch. Now, now this is the, the son of Herod the Great, who we read a little bit about the beginning of Luke's gospel as Jesus was born. This is Herod the Tetrarch, his son, who we hear in Luke's gospel in this particular passage, tragically, has beheaded John the Baptist. Now, other Gospels give a lot more color there, and I wish we could go there more, but, but, but we're going to stick to Luke's agenda. Two things, two simple notes I want you to see here in this text. First, the message of the kingdom had spread far and wide. How far? How wide? Well, well so far and so wide that even those at the top, like Herod himself, were aware of the work and ministry of Jesus. This follows the account of his apostles going out. This kicked up some some stuff, didn't it? It goes right to the top. Secondly, false theories on Jesus' work have always and will always abound until he returns. See these explanations they're given to Herod? Yeah, it's, uh, it's John the Baptist. He's back. Hair's wigged out. Right? I beheaded John. It better not be John. Some say, reaching back and, 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 and citing a prophecy from Malachi 4. No, well, well, Elijah's supposed to come again. Maybe this is a manifestation of Elijah. Some say, I don't know who it is, but one of the prophets has risen from the dead. Note this resurrection language. This is like what they're assuming is happening for there to be such power here. It's crazy. Herod, like all of us, had to wrestle with the question, who is this man? Who is this Jesus? It's the question that that Dr. Luke has been begging us to answer all throughout his gospel. Who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this? He even wants to see Jesus. Now, there's a lot of writing about is seeing, like seeing and killing, is seeing just curiosity. But the reader of Scripture will know that he will see Jesus, won't he? See, curiosity about Jesus isn't enough. Submission to Jesus is what's required. All right. Let's get to the big one. We'll do this quick. Verses 10 to 17, we see this third and and amazing segment of Scripture. It's the account of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Now, 
This is wild now. This, this account, this, this miracle is the only miracle, singular, ah, miracle, only one outside of the resurrection, that is, that's recorded in all four Gospels. The only one other than the resurrection that's in all four Gospels. Probably a pretty big deal. And, and before we just sort of dissect it a little bit, I, I want to encourage you to shake off the familiarity with this passage. Don't yawn, friends. This is, this is a different kind of category. <laughs> the, the amazement, the, the wonder here that's solicited is a very big deal. I mean, just, just think about your own per, personal practical life. Some of you are accustomed to cooking for a big crowd. What's a big crowd? Like 20? Get your family reunion. You got 30. Maybe you got 100. Julie Libertor, where's Julie? She's cooking for 100 all the time. She's constantly feeding us. There's a lot of work required to do that, right? There's some planning. There's some expense. There's a lot of coordination. So add a zero, right? Go from from 50, or add a couple zeros, from 50 to 500. This is 5,000, and 5,000 are just the men. Matthew's gospel tells us that's just the men, aside from the women and the children. So I don't know how many we're talking about in this crowd. If you do some quick math, you say on average there was a a wife or one child, we're up to 15,000 feeding a crowd like that. And they're satisfied, by the way. No one goes away. Barely sated. 15,000. Unless they take the Friendship Community Church algorithm for kids, then they've probably got like 30,000 or something like that. There's a bunch of kids (laughs) running around here all of a sudden. Jesus shows, here's the bottom line, Jesus shows that He is sufficient to meet any need, no matter how great. Surely that's the point. And this is an amazing picture, I think, of the compassion of Christ. What's he trying to do in verse 10? The apostles had returned from their their travels, from being sent out, and and they came to report back to Jesus all that he had done. And his, his intention was to go away was to depart, to get some time with his disciples, some time to, who knows, to to recharge, to teach. But the crowds learn of it, and they follow him. And what's the Savior do as a good shepherd when the sheep come hungry and needy? Well, he has compassion on them. These teeming crowds are invading his privacy. They're probably disturbing his rest, and yet Jesus has compassion. He beckons them and us to come. The disciples come to Jesus in quite a conundrum after he's been feeding them. And, you know, it's getting late into the day, and they say, hey, Jesus, send these guys away. This is a forsaken place. There's no like Walmart Supercenter around the corner. Send them home. We, I don't know what to do with these guys. Keep in mind, they had just returned from doing amazing stuff in Jesus' name. They've seen him speak to the storm, and it's calm in an instant. They've watched him raise dead people back to life. Sometimes we get spiritual amnesia, don't we? Sometimes we forget 
what God is capable of and, and who He is. They're in the presence of God the Son. They've watched what He can do again and again and again, and yet their need comes before them, and what do they say? They immediately start getting practical, don't they? We don't have enough money for this. Well, how are we going to figure this out? And this is our reflex too, isn't it? To trust in our own resources, to trust in our own abilities to meet the needs that are in front of us. They've got five loaves and two measly fish. Now, these aren't like salmon fillets and one pound, you know, slices of bread that you get from Giant Eagle. We know that. This is a meager amount of food because we know that because this is a little boy's lunch. That's what this is. They bring this little boy's lunch. Again, we get that from other, other Gospels, that interesting detail. And Jesus, see him doing this before, he gives thanks and he breaks the bread and he begins to distribute it. He begins to distribute it. I, uh, I wish we had more detail here, don't you? I've tried to picture this in my head. How did it work? Right? Did he like? Did he break off the bread and it grew and he just you know like want want like I'm a bit confounded as to the logistics of how they pulled this off. He had him sitting down in groups of fifty. And before we get too far ahead with those logistics. We should just keep in mind to emphasize the thing God's Word emphasizes. This, this is the only hint God's Word gives us as to the method of the multiplication of the food. The only, the only detail, at least the only one I can see. You can tell me if you see another one. It's, it's this little clue we see here in verse 16. We read that he, he gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. The, the, the Greek there is, he kept on giving. It's an imperfect, continuous, past action tense. What that means is, he, he kept on giving it. He kept on giving it. I love how um, one uh, late biblical theologian put it, Alexander McLaren, he said, the pieces grew under his touch, and the disciples always found his hands full when they came back with their own empty. Isn't that beautiful? They always found his hands full when they came back with their own hands empty. We would be remiss here as we are nearing the end to only focus on the, the miracle of the food here. There's something beautiful and bigger happening here than merely the filling of some bellies. After all, they would be hungry again tomorrow. And if our 10-year-old was there, he'd be asking Jesus for a to-go box, I think. <laughs> be hungry in a matter of minutes, trying to like grab bread out of the 12 baskets that were left on his way out. The point is that this physical, temporal miracle was pointing ahead to a greater kingdom reality. It was teaching us that Jesus is the bread of life and that he himself sustains his people. And you can read John's account of this miracle in John chapter 6, and you'll see that's precisely the point that Jesus is getting to. But again, we're not preaching John, we're preaching Luke, so... so Back and, and one more for you. One more. 
Note in verse 17, the leftovers. This is, this is bonkers. So, I want to submit to you that this has never happened in your life or experience. No matter how much food you start with, the amount that's left over is never more after people are done eating than when you started. So we got a big family. And if we were to order three pizzas for dinner at the Thomas house, and then we all ate, and I was packing up the leftovers at the end to put back in the fridge for lunch tomorrow, because cold pizza's legit. We ordered three pizzas. We all ate. Have I ever done that and like found myself packing up five boxes full of pizza at the end? No! This is wild! Note two, on a personal level, the number. Please see, the number of leftover baskets. Isn't it curious that there were 12 apostles struggling to conceive how Jesus could provide. And by Jesus' command, <laughs> wondering how he could pull anything like this off. And at the end of this miraculous moment, there is a basket for each one of those disciples, as if to say, I'm enough. I'm enough. We, like they, church, struggle. We do. We struggle with spiritual amnesia. And so I think we should leave with the, the, the text of God before us with a call to remember that even when the need is desperate, we've prayed for some desperate situations even among ourselves this morning, even when the need is desperate, even when you don't have the resources or the raw materials present, even when the scale of the problems is, is just more than you can wrap your mind around, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. We dare not presume upon His generosity or His miracle-working power. But we believe and we trust, as Rich led us in reading before we started, that He's a good shepherd. And he provides for his sheep. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you for saving us, for setting our feet upon a rock. Thank you that this gospel of the kingdom, Christ, that you proclaimed and that you gave to the, to the hands you placed in the, the shaking hands of these 12 apostles, has by the power of your Spirit been passed down to the corners of the earth so that we here in southwestern Pennsylvania today in 2023 would see of your works and would wonder. And we declare, God, you are enough. You are sufficient to provide for the need before us. And so we pray, Lord, guard us from presumption. Guard us from running ahead of you and trying to manufacture our own miracles in your name. And yet, give us faith, God. We believe you're enough. Help us overcome our unbelief, God. Make us here at FCC a people who see and wonder and submit to your lordship in our lives. 
We pray in Christ's marvelous name. And all God's people said,